For your information is brought to you by the Barber's Barber Shop, barbering since 1908. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. Look up, Hannah. Welcome to For Your Inflammation, a podcast about good movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your hosts, Zach Graham. And John Kaplan. And this April, we're celebrating April Fools all month long with a look back of comedies throughout the past century and current century. Um, so this week, I thought it would be great to start in 1940 with one of the most significant um, albeit non-intentional comedy films of all time, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator from 1940. So, John, this is one that I actually can't blame you for not seeing. If you didn't know, that's kind of the concept of our podcast, is it's movies that John has not seen because this motherfucker has not seen anything. But now that we've been doing the podcast, he's starting to get it, so, like, now we're gonna go back into some of the earlier films. And this is probably one of the earliest, like, talking comedy films you can watch. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but uh, Charlie Chaplin is maybe best known for his, like, silent film era stuff. Correct. And we are going to get into that um, here very shortly. But this was his first full talking picture because he kind of didn't buy into the whole talking thing. Like, it's kind of like how 3D movies were back in, like, 2010, 2009. Mm -hmm. Like, some studios bought into it, some didn't. And that one ultimately didn't end up panning out. But uh, talking pictures absolutely 100% ended up panning out. But can you imagine a world where they did not? I honestly can't because, like, as technology, like, progressed, like, I mean, somebody was going to make a movie with talking in it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like... I feel like the more interesting thing is why did silent film die off? Because there were still people up until like the 19, like late 1940s making silent pictures, uh, namely Buster Keaton, uh-huh. um, who was also probably second to Charlie Chaplin in the silent era. Right, because, I mean, at that point, you have to entertain the proto-boomers, you know, because, like, you got people who are like, ah, these kids these days don't know anything about good films, and they're what? watching silent films. Like, they have a guy with, the, like, an upright piano down by the screen going, <laughs> while they, like, put the lady on the railroad tracks, like, tied up with rope, and, like, the car's coming by. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> He's in the little mustache twirl. He's wearing a bowler hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys, you got to entertain those guys because they got the money. Exactly. And, like, honestly, sometimes I do think about the silent era and how much more of an experience it had to be. Yeah, like, you got people, like, screaming at the screen, you know? You have to actually read, which I don't know what the literacy percentage of the country was at that time, but, you know. Um, probably lower than today, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> um, but, like, I mean, like, you know, like you said, like, they actually had some, they actually had someone in there with a piano, or at the very least they had one of those, like, oh, what do they call them? Like, the little, like, like, tin scroll things that you put in the piano and it plays the piano for you. Yeah, the player piano. Yeah, <laughs> which, like... <laughs> 
that the name of that type of piano is always like made me feel weird because like the player piano you would think it's like oh that's the piano that the player like the person playing it plays but it's like no this is like the lazy fuck version yeah exactly yeah it plays itself it's a, it's a self-playing piano do you think that piano players had to unionize after that thing came out because like what's the point of like hiring a piano player when you can just have one of those i mean i'll answer your question with a question do we still have grocery store cashiers because we have self-checkout you know what you right you right like Obviously, like, you don't want to have an orchestra setting with one of those things, but, like, just, like, some bar. Like, they're going to hire a piano player. Like, listen, Billy Joel had not been born yet. No. Well, how do you know? When was Billy Joel born? Um, okay, this is going to be the rare time that I'm going to look it up. Hang on. You mean, under normal circumstances, you would just have the person's birthday on tap? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I usually try. Ah, Billy Joel was born in 1949. Ah, so he is about nine years past the release of this film. Correct. So, not by much, but Billy Joel had not been born yet, and he certainly had not written Piano Man yet. So, you know, I feel like that might have brought in a renaissance of piano players. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Total I joke. agree. <laughs> and at the risk of becoming completely off base, um, I think what you meant to talk about with the beginning of all this was, like, there are some pretty clear, like, political implications with this film. Yeah. So, let's get into that. So, how did you feel about the movie you know it's kind of surreal and like to know your history is to know about this movie and i think that like it is a very much a time and place thing where it was like a hey crazy things are going on in the world but you know we're doing our best to you know get through it all and like try to not be too dark about it because at this point like when this movie came out the u.s was not in world war ii this was very much a foreign problem very much a european problem that upset people really badly but like was not something that had a direct effect on what we were doing back here nearly as much as it would in the coming years right like this is before anyone even knew about the atrocities of like the concentration camps and just what germany was doing in general like all of that information came out after the fact of this movie yes and i think that um i think that it's something that we may not even really be able to get away with today i think that uh entertainment has become very very um personal for a lot of people like it's become something that a lot and not to say that this wasn't personal for a lot of people there are very very good reasons why somebody could be upset by this but i think um it it's hard to describe exactly why it is because i guess there's more responsibility placed on media these days there's more responsibility and um the responsibility of the artist is greater now because back in the day like you know people who were in movies like they were just stars like they didn't really have any like power and that's what makes this film so interesting is that it's almost charlie chaplin's like anger like he's so angry about this that he decided to retire from silent films and start making talkie pictures yes i see that um and again i before i go into this next little bit i have to ask you zach do you know about Jew or not Jew.com. It's essentially a website that's uh, produced by a group of Jewish people. It's almost like funny in a sense where they're like uh, judging the Jewishness of people in like pop culture. And oh, okay. yeah, they make profiles of people. And then at the bottom, they're like, oh, did you guess this person is actually a Jew or is not actually a Jew? So Charlie Chaplin's ends with regrettably not actually a Jew. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can also, uh, I, I do believe Adam Sandler makes reference to this in the Hanukkah song. Oh, does he really? 
Yeah, Charlie Chaplin, not a Jew. Um, it's um, I believe these people also make TikToks, mm. uh, where they um ask people on the street if something is anti-Semitic or not, like like something innocuous, like mm. um, like uh, not putting cream cheese on a bagel is that anti-Semitic? Highly anti-Semitic. <laughs> I feel like it's not our position to say. Uh, th- l- let me just, like, get that out of the way here. Uh, neither one of us are Jewish. No, 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 no. So no, no. We, will, we will try and tread lightly here because there is some shit to get into here. So do you feel like this movie even counts as satire? Because um, it's, just, it's just so close. Like, it's, and it just, they, all they did was change the names of the people and the country. That's it. It is essentially the parent trap set in Nazi Germany. (laughs) Or like Freaky Friday uh, set in Nazi Germany. Like, that's literally what it is. And like, I don't think that it's even like, I don't even think it's like a satire at all. I think it's legitimately just a movie about a concept that's like, kind of unbelievable so like the fact that you could have somebody that's like literally a hitler type and get him swapped over with somebody that is like literally a victim of uh, not just the like policies of what would have been the nazi party but also like of the system that led to the rise of the nazi party is a really (laughs) really interesting thing to have it's a really really interesting like perspective to take on it and it's not necessarily something that's like believable but i think that's why it works so well for like what you could consider a comedy but it's like a comedy with a golden heart it's a comedy that wears its political affiliation and its heart on its sleeve yeah yes and you know and you know like you said like would it be hard to make a film like this today i mean we kind of did uh do you remember the whole like shit that happened with the interview back in like what 2011 2012 i was wondering how long it would take for us to get to this point and yes i do remember all of the controversy on that Uh, again kind of like a a comedy that's like a little too serious for its own good but ultimately has a heart of gold yeah it's like it's ultimately trying to say like you know whereas that movie is trying to what i believe while very exploitative it's trying to humanize and say like hey sometimes these dictators are just people and they get caught up in like bad shit and it doesn't make them good people but you know like that's ultimately the thesis of that movie whereas this movie is basically just um for lack of a better way to say it, hitler is an idiot yes which he is and, uh, or was and um but this movie like didn't really paint him like quite as evil as he actually was yeah i see that and uh, for the sake of like the comedy i think they had to do it and again we're looking at this through historical lens at the time a lot of the really really dark shit had not happened yet or was not public knowledge yet this would be like making a movie making fun of like vladimir putin like right before he invaded um ukraine a little bit like that yeah yeah like that that would like that would be the most recent example so in order to wash down some of this heaviness uh another thing we do on this podcast is john always makes a cocktail to go with the movie because what he doesn't know about movies he does know about alcohol so john uh what what did you bring for me this week is it something inspired is it maybe like a period accurate drink i'm I'm chomping at the bit. I got to hear about this. Yeah, no, definitely have one for you. I was actually really inspired by some of the, like, uh, imagery in the film and, like, some of, like, the places in the film because it is a beautiful movie, and it does remind you of some of the, like, more beautiful places in that part of the world, like, over in Europe. So this cocktail is called the Austerlich Cocktail. Ooh. 
and it's kind of a throwback to like uh, an early 20th century type drink, like something you might have seen in like uh, an Art Deco period or like an artistic period of France or something like that. And uh, here's how you would make it. So you'll get yourself a cocktail shaker and put some ice in it. You'll get one and a half ounces of uh, Empress 1908 gin. You'll get a half ounce of Cointreau and three quarter ounce of lemon juice and shake it vigorously with the ice. Then you're going to take the other half of the cocktail shaker once you're done shaking, make sure there's no ice in it, and then you're going to strain that mixture into the other half of the cocktail glass, discard the ice. Then you're going to take about half of an egg white and add it to that mix, and you're going to dry shake it. So with all of the ice cubes removed, shake it vigorously, I'm going to say like 20-30 seconds, and then you're going to strain it out into a rocks glass. And that is the Austerlich cocktail. Essentially, you're getting a little bit of the um, kind of the, the the herbal parts of the gin, but they're going to be bruised. I, I, I don't know if you've heard of a bruising gin before. Is that something you've heard of? Um, I mean, I get pretty bruised when I drink too much gin. I see. I see. A different kind of bruising. So <laughs> this is that, uh, that old shaken and stirred thing with gin, where if you shake a gin for an extended period of time, it tends to take away some of the bite from the herbal flavor, whereas if you stir it it's a little bit more in your face and this is where the like myth comes from that like if you shake a gin cocktail it's not as alcoholic whereas if you stir it it is more alcoholic that's actually not true it just has to do with the flavor profile of the gin and even that is sometimes up for debate (laughs) yeah it's like it's gin is one of the it's kind of like vodka where it's kind of hard to mask the taste of it Mm -hmm. so you kind of have to like it like vodka can only be really muddled with fruit correct like you can't really do it with anything else like there's no other like liquor that'll mask the flavor of it well i think most of your liqueurs are going to be like fruit flavored or fruit inspired so like again like a cointreau like technically cointreau is like a full strength like liquor it's not actually but like a triple sec would be a similar flavor that is not super strong that's a really common thing to see with uh vodka yeah that's fruit flavored um off the top of my head i really can't think of any other ones except for maybe benedictine but you're never really gonna see like benedictine in a cocktail with vodka like that's not very common benedictine itself isn't even that common um usually i've never even heard of it yeah i mean it, it's another one of those like kind of more obscure uh, herbal cocktail liqueurs um uh, campari is another one that comes to mind that's something that you would see in like a negroni um negroni is actually a really great cocktail also made with gin uh off the top of my head i can only maybe think of one or two cocktails i've ever encountered that had both vodka and uh campari in it interesting so bruise that gin and sit down into a two hour long movie about hitler yeah 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 uh you could also garnish it with something nice uh rosemary is something that comes to mind if you prefer like the herbal flavor or maybe mint is something that i would do if you prefer more of the fruity side of the flavor yeah you can have an era accurate mint jelly Mmm, delicious. I cannot believe mint jelly. Like, that. Like that's something people used to put, like, they used to pair it with steak. You know, I mint is such a good thing to eat, but, like, they overdid it a little bit back in the day. Well, I feel like we've just replaced mint with cilantro. That's true. That's true. At least in America. Oh, also, if you like the fruity flavor, you can add a couple dashes of orange bitters. Ooh, orange bitters. I've never had these. Oh, orange bitters are great. They're like Angostura bitters, but they, you know, don't just taste like herbs. <laughs> awesome because i i really don't like bitters because like anytime i end up using them like i either put too much or too little yeah you should definitely try orange bitters then okay i'll I'll definitely do that because like a lot of things i drink do tend to be orange um i've been sipping on this orange jameson yeah yeah th- you've mentioned the orange jameson a couple times now is it like a like a chocolate orange at christmas time kind of flavor no it's more like um i don't 
like it's very odd i do definitely suggest drinking it straight um it almost tastes like a um like a brandy almost it's very odd like it's definitely a whiskey and has like the whiskey bite but it kind of goes down and has like a brandy aftertaste Hmm. now i like that might just be me like my my taste buds have always been like very odd like i always like i I don't know why like i've my mouth is just weird i guess Hmm. (laughs) you heard it here first zach's mouth is weird my mouth is weird but uh it knows what it's doing hey oh no it doesn't all right So speaking of other things that don't work, we're going to bring in our good, friendly, homeless synopsis reader, Frank Synopsis. How you doing, buddy? I am doing just fine. It keeps getting warmer and warmer and warmer out there. The garbage gets hotter and hotter and it gets smellier and smellier out there in the city. So do, do you prefer the cold and no smell or do you prefer the heat and smell? I take the smell with me wherever I go. That is true. Uh, we actually have um, those like little Febreze spritz things here in the studio just for when Frank comes in. Uh, they just constantly go. So if you hear a little while Frank is here, that's what's going on. Oh, I thought anyway, you had a bit of a snake problem. We also have a snake problem. So Frank, um, have you ever seen the film The Great Dictator? Oh, of course I did. It was actually one of the only films I saw on my vacation abroad. Vacation abroad? Oh, where'd you go, Frank? Well, I went to Tomania. You know, I brought back my didgeridoo and my boomerang and my uh, little kangaroo, you know, that I was able to smuggle through customs. Okay, so A, I think you went to Tasmania, and B, you brought a kangaroo back? Well, that's what they told me it was. Oh, what was it really? I don't know. It likes to bite a lot. Ah, is is, is it a Tasmanian devil or... Oh, I think you mean a Tomanian devil. Whatever. (laughs) So, Frank, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Great Dictator? All right. During the First World War, a Jewish barber saves the life of a Tomanian pilot. His debt comes in handy once the fascist dictator Adenoid Henkel takes over Tomania. Henkel seeks to eliminate all brunettes, but mostly the Jewish people of Tomania and the world. The pilot, the barber, and his allies carry out the plot to take down Henkel and his allies and wind up saving the country and the world with a classic switcheroo and the power of the spoken word. Thank you very much, Frank. Um, You may pick up your gift bag on the way out. It has... As toilet paper and a clean pair of underwear. Um, we hope you take the hint. Oh, of course. I can use this to uh, staunch the bleeding from my Tomanian devil bites. You know what? That's that. That's as good a thing as any. See you, Frank. All right, bye. All right, John. Are you ready to get into this? Are you ready to learn some new things about Charlie Chaplin? Yeah, man. I think uh, you're gonna have to call a. Um, you're gonna have to call an exterminator. Oh, why's that? Uh, Frank's here again. This is as good a time as any to re- to remind everyone. If you'd like to sponsor our show so we can get a better synopsis reader, um, please do. Um, if you want to give to the show directly, um, you know, just message us. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, just uh, dump a few ones in a uh, in, in an envelope and uh, send it to a P.O. box. Just any P.O. box. It'll get to us. Yeah, they'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Let's get started. So, the film was directed by Charlie Chaplin, who's also credited in this as Charles Chaplin. I guess when he's talking in a movie, he's Charles Chaplin and not Charlie. I see. Please, please. Charlie was my father's name. Call me Charles. (laughs) 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 Who would want to go by Charles? I mean, it's the same kind of switcheroo we saw in the movie. Exactly. So, he also wrote and produced this film, and, of course, stars as the barber and Adnoid Hinkle. Is this an auteur film? I suppose so. This is, like, prior to the auteur movement, but, yes, we could technically count this as proto-auteur. Proto-auteur film. You heard it here first. Jewornotjew.com. 
<laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, this film also stars Paulette Goddard as Hannah, Jack Oakey as Benzino Napoloni, mm. um, Henry Denali as Garbage, uh, Reginald Gardner as Commander Schultz, Billy Gilbert as Herring, and Maurice Moscovich as Mr. Jekyll. Mm. Uh, the cinematography was by Carl Struss and Roland Tothro. Yes. Edited by Willard Nico and Harold Rice. Uh, music by Charlie Chaplin and Meredith Wilson. Uh, Meredith Wilson also wrote the musical The Music Man. Uh, the production company was uh, Charles Chaplin Film Corporation. Again, He's Charles, not Charlie. Charles, not <laughs> Charlie. Like, bud, not buddy, but way, way more Hitler mustache. Ooh, ooh, that, that brought me right back to book fair. Oof. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wait, the Hitler mustache or bud, not buddy? Bud, not buddy. Oh, okay. I was going to say, what, what kind of things are you buying at the Scholastic Book Fair? Listen, man, it was Paulding County, Georgia. There was some weird shit in there. You could get your Harry Potters. You could also get your um, Nazi World War II books. And you can also get a book about how to make moonshine. But of course, as always, you could get a Bible. Um, but not a Quran. No, no. <laughs> oh, Paulding County. It's better now, apparently. It's better now than it was. Is it really? Yeah, apparently. That's what I hear. I don't know if I believe it. I think everything is supposed to get at least a little better as time goes on. It's supposed to age like fine wine and not like sour cream. Ugh. Yeah, like, it amazes me how bad sour cream goes. Like, once you open it, you only have about two more days to eat that shit. Yeah, well, that's why I buy the extra large one, so I can make, like, a yogurt parfait with it. So I, I just make sure I get my money's worth. You make yogurt parfait with sour cream? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, you, like, crush up some of those uh, wavy Lay's chips, and you put them in the bottom, and then you put a layer of sour cream, and then you put in, like, um, you know, like, some, uh, some like, garlic or whatever, and then you put another oh, layer of chips. I thought you were using sour cream as yogurt. Yeah, you could do that, too, if you're weird. I mean, I always thought it was weird, like, they have the sour cream donuts. Sour cream donuts? Not, like, a cheese danish, but, like, a sour cream donut? Yeah, so it's, like, it's a sour cream glaze. Mm. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same thing, but I think it is. I mean, it's just crema. That is weird. We got to move on. <laughs> All right. So this movie was distributed by United Artists. It was it had its world premiere on October 15th, 1940 in New York City. And it's worldwide premiere on October. Well, not worldwide, at least in the United States on October 31st, 1940. So this is a Halloween movie. I, oh, yeah, it's pretty scary at times. <laughs> it's pretty scary after the fact. Um, so the budget of this movie was $2 million, and in 2020 dollars, that would have been $37,210,526. All down to the $6. It, it is, um... It, which it, really by today's standards is not that much it's really not no a 37 million dollar budget i mean um what was it that we covered last week that had like a 35 million dollar blood in blood out yeah blood in blood out had a 35 million dollar budget yeah and look what they did with it look what they did with it here the mm. dollar used to go a lot further back in that day yes it did <laughs> and you know what uh we're not gonna get into that different type of politics the total box office for this for the original run of this film was 3.5 million dollars and that's in u.s rentals wow see back in the day the the like the movie theater or your local movie theater or 
what they would be called back then is movie palaces. They would rent the movie, and that's how the studio got their money. The movie palace got to keep all of the ticket sales. But then at some point, um, the movie studio started taking also some of that revenue. Mm, yeah. And, you know, it makes you wonder then, like, what does that have to do with the price of the tickets? Because, like, not every movie theater has the same price tickets. And then there's different, like, tiers of tickets you can buy. And there's, like, different times where they cost different amounts of money. Do you think it's a flat rate that they get on the ticket sales? Or do you think it's, like, a scalable amount? It's a scalable amount just because um, that's how the movie studios have to make their money now. It's pretty it's pretty sad. I mean, like, why does a large popcorn and large drink cost like almost twenty dollars? That's why. That's the only way they make money. Mm, right. Because uh, the, so- because the the movie theaters essentially don't make any money on the tickets. Like they might make a couple cents. Wow. And what's more is they have to pay to get the movie too. And they have to pay for the physical location to screen the movie. Correct. I mean, it's it's pretty fucked, honestly. Like, I, I love going to the movie theaters. I think there's no other real way to watch some of these kind of movies. Like, especially first-run movies. Like, I always want to see a new movie that I've never seen before on a big screen. Now, movies that are not new, it's kind of harder to do that. But, ugh, it's just such a better experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I can agree. Again, the most recent movie that I had seen was The Batman, and I could not imagine watching it on a phone screen ripped straight from Pirate Bay. David Lynch's balls just shriveled up back into his body. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? Like, he he goes on this whole long rant of, like, why the fuck would you want to watch a movie on your phone? I mean, he's not wrong. worked very hard on this. Yeah, he's not wrong. Oh, absolutely not. Um... I was kind of busy this week, so I ended up actually watching this movie on my phone, but I did originally see this in a theater. Oh, wow. Where'd you see this in a theater at? Uh, Plaza Theater in Atlanta. Ah, okay. There it goes. It was for it was for school. I see. I see. When I went to film school. Ooh. Remember, I'm a film school dropout. Yeah. Film school dropout. Anyway, I hate Grease. Um, we talked about this extensively. Yes, we did. Grease, <laughs> Grease, Grease, Grease Fire. <laughs> If you haven't listened to that episode, go back. Um, if you want to hear me shit on a movie that everybody pretty much universally loves, that's going to be your episode. Yeah, but why? we cannot get into we we can't go back. <laughs> no. <laughs> as much as I would like to do a um a second uh, like a part two to that Grease episode where I literally just shit on every frame of the film, I don't think that's very constructive, and probably someone's already done it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we are going to go back to 1938. 1938. Well actually, well, actually, before we go to 1938, we're going to go to like before 1927. Let's get started. So, as we said before, this was Charlie Chaplin's first talkie, which, if you've heard that term before and you're not quite sure what it means, it's just literally a film with talking actors. Mm-hmm. So, previously, before talkies, all films were silent, kind of like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. You know, you'd have someone with the piano or the not piano, the player piano. Um, player piano is always swiping right on your girl. <laughs> is so are you saying that the someone playing a piano is the virgin and the player piano is the chat no i'm saying that the player piano has like uh it, it has no manners when it comes to interacting with uh the, the fairer sex <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's kind of how silent films were. They, they, they couldn't talk. They didn't have the technology. And that was until 1927 with the release of the Warner Brothers film, The Jazz Singer. Um, we've talked about this before, specifically in the Singing in the Rain episode. Um, 
it's uh it's not a great movie it's, as a matter of fact it's mostly racist but it is the first talking picture so right. you I either guess die a racist movie or live long enough to see yourself become a fascist movie uh, that might be the title of the episode um <laughs> So anyway, so Charlie Chaplin was probably the greatest, at, at least in retrospect, probably the greatest silent film star. He's probably the first person you think of when you think of silent pictures. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and he didn't, once talkies came out, he didn't exactly go for them right away. As a matter of fact, he made two great silent films, uh, City Lights in 1932 and Modern Times in 1936 during this, like, in-between era where, like, the talkies were happening, but, like, it was basically Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, like, kind of holding on to the silent film era. Uh-huh. And it's just because, like, you know, like I said, like, they didn't quite buy into it just yet. It's not, it wasn't, like, it was also very hard and expensive to make a talking picture, whereas a silent picture you could make for, you know, literally a fraction. Charlie Chaplin's character in all of his film, all of his silent era films was called The Tramp. He still is kind of dressed as The Tramp in this movie. So The Tramp is stereotypically like, uh, it's the bowler hat, tiny little mustache, ratty suit, and a cane. And he still plays... Like he, like he still looks like the tramp in this movie when he's playing the barber. Uh, when he's Adenoid Hinkle, it's uh, completely gone. This is also a resemblance that the title card of the film like uh, implores you to ignore. Right, right. <laughs> because I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is maybe one of the first instances or one, maybe at the very least one of the most early instances of someone playing multiple roles in the same film. Yeah, um, it's almost like a uh, like a Mrs. Doubtfire type situation. Almost, almost. Well, Except Mrs. Doubtfire is actually Hitler. We we I <laughs> don't do Robin Williams like this. <laughs> please, <laughs> please don't do Robin Williams like this. All right, uh, how about this uh, bicentennial man? Except the robot is actually Hitler. Why are you bringing up bicentennial man? No one has thought about that movie in almost 20 years you know what man i'm bringing it back we're covering it you heard it here first we will eventually cover bicentennial man oh god are we gonna do ai in the same month oh man we could do ai irobot uh terminator 2 and uh uh bicentennial man just like doing this movie right now we will make sure that we do all of those films when the robot uprising starts yes so anyway, this was actually probably Chaplin's first time stepping away from the Tramp character, even though the character that looks like the Tramp in this film is not called the Tramp, he's called just simply the Barber. He doesn't really have a name. Right. So before this movie came out, Chaplin was starting to become really popular worldwide, uh, even being mobbed and praised by a German crowd in Berlin, which somehow annoyed the Nazis so much that they put him into a book that they wrote called... Um, no easy way to say this uh, the jews are looking at you and called chaplin um also no easy way to say this a disgusting jewish acrobat even though as we said before charlie chaplin himself is not jewish so like you're just walking down the street somewhere in europe and then just something like swings by overhead and you're overwhelmed by the stench of paunch and you're like oh you know what that must be one of those things they were talking about no that's not a real thing what the fuck do they mean by that I don't know what the hell that means. What does that mean? Like, it's it's almost like people who just, like, say socialism and, like, immediately think that you should have a bad taste in your mouth. So they say Jewish acrobat, and they're like, oh, not, not another one of those performing Jews. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, oh, wow, what a terrible thing. That's crazy. Whoa. <laughs> oh, man. Like, it, it, it is, like, when you see some of this stuff, it's it's so odd to think that anybody would be following any of this. It, it is. Uh, we're trying to make sense of something that made absolutely no sense. It was in itself disgusting. So maybe we just shouldn't spend any more time on it than it demands. Because we've already covered the fact that Charlie Chaplin was not actually Jewish. Yeah, so it's just completely, like... It's it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, much to the chagrin of his many Jewish fans. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the development of this movie. So the entire idea came from one afternoon where Chaplin and French filmmaker René Claire, who um, directed the American film, uh, and then there were none in 1945, which is an Agatha Christie adaptation. Uh, they were both watching a screening of the Nazi propaganda film, Triumph of the Will, which in German would be Triumph der Willens. Uh, you gotta 19- hit the W with more of a V. Triumph der Willens. They are villains. Yes. You are correct. It, that movie was made in 1935. Uh, Rene began to sob watching this horrible regime take power on film and said it should not be shown in the West. Um, just as an aside, um it is like kind of like a very emotionally manipulative like powerful film like not in a way that anyone should or would agree but that it like tries to humanize certain aspects of the nazis and dehumanize um anyone who's not aryan yeah but it's in yeah, a completely I, fabricated way kind of in the same way as a uh, birth of a nation yeah did it for was the a Ku Klux giant Klan. like recruiting vehicle for them you know they were really good at taking advantage of people who had been like put down for a really long time or really tired of it and weaponized that and i mean it's funny that because like when you watch a film like this it's almost like they took that idea flipped it on its head and they used it to sell something against nazism Correct, and that's exactly what Chaplin thought because he started bursting out into laughter while watching this screening because he just, he saw exactly how to make fun of these people. And, I mean, good on him, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's very responsible and very brave of him, frankly, at the time. At the time, yeah. Uh, They were not very happy about that, that, but we'll get to that. Yeah, they (laughs) Um, already didn't like him, apparently. Yeah, um, I guess I could just go ahead and talk about it now. Apparently, Hitler did watch this film. Uh, There's, like, kind of conflicting um uh how do you say that conflicting um, information there's conflicting accounts about whether or not he watched it but most uh people that they asked about it said that he watched it at least twice interesting so the first time was for uh comedic value and the second one was for brooding um i think it was for ideas Uh, that's not good (laughs) I, I I honestly think I couldn't find too much about it, but like that was my first thought. I was like, oh, did he get ideas from this? Oh god, oh, this that's is no bad. art becomes life. No, <laughs> oh no, life is supposed to imitate art, not the other way around. So this film was mostly shot at Charlie Chaplin Studios, which I don't think is still in L.A. I think it became something else. Right, not to be but, confused with like um, what were those personal studios they used for Night of the Demon? Um, well, that was porn, and I don't think Charlie Chaplin Studios got used for porn, at least not to my knowledge. Mm, yeah. Um, however, the World War One sequences that open up the film were filmed at Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It does I- look like L.A. It does. I mean, everything in old Hollywood looks like L.A. Yeah, even LA if it is. L.A. still kind of looks like old Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. They're just holding on. They're holding on to that and just watching the city crumble around them. That is their economy. <laughs> um, Jesus Christ. Um, sorry, LA. I, I'm just calling it like it is. We have ripped um, so- on LA many times in the past month. I'm not going to say sorry. Okay. Be better. <laughs> Be better. 
So as we said before, Charlie Chapson takes on multiple acting roles in the film, as well as several behind-the-scenes roles, including composing the music with Meredith Wilson. So this is really like, he took it on here. And that's what he did with his silent-era film. So I think he just really wanted to have complete creative control over this. Like, this is his thing. Like, th- like it's... Do you view that as masturbatory in a way? Uh, you're talking about the fact that he did all of it? Yeah. I don't know, because I think that his motivations were, like, mostly unselfish here. Like, obviously, he's a filmmaker. He's going to make films. He is probably going to benefit from it. But he did take a risk on doing this at this time, maybe. And I think that, like, leaning in so hard onto it makes it a passion project. Because one of the few things that I do know about Charlie Chaplin is that, while it turns out that he is not actually Jewish, uh, he had a lot of really dear friends and uh, people that were really close to him that were Jewish. And this was very upsetting and disturbing to him that this was happening in the world. As it should have been to everyone. Right. If you're if you're from 1940 and it didn't disturb you, shame on you. Do better. Right. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they couldn't have known in 1940 what 1945 would be like, but I uh, probably could have guessed. Pro- I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's like, were we surprised that the Capitol got stormed? Were we really shocked? No. <laughs> anyway, let's let's keep our politics here and not to the obvious, you know, parallel. So let's let's keep our politics here and not to the obvious parallels. Um. So, film began in 1939, coincidentally the same month Germany invaded Poland. Coincidence? Coincidence? It's kind of odd that they still went through with the movie after that happened. I mean, you know what? Uh, news travels a lot more slowly back then. And maybe you could argue it's, it would have been even more important at that time. That is true. That, that is actually true. Um, so most signs in the ghetto are re- written in Esperanto, a language that Hitler found to be a Jewish plot to, uh, a Jewish anti-nationalist plot to destroy German culture by the Jewish people of Germany. Again, I just like, I, he's sitting in an office, he's like, this Esperanto language is undermining all of our German culture, and you know what else? These trapeze flying Jews. <laughs> On the flying trapeze. Um, so, Ch- <laughs> so Chaplin also plays Hinkle in the film, and when he makes his speeches, he uses a fake German gibberish. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's absolutely... It's just, it's just so bad. It's like... Like, at one point, I think he says schnitzel 45 times in a row. Yes. <laughs> Almost as if Charlie Chaplin doesn't even know like any german words no but he does such a good job selling the energy and and i i get it now like i get how he could watch some of the like the reels of footage from like the triumph of the will or just some of the other hitler stuff and be like you know what man it is about the energy and then just kind (laughs) of run with that be like you know what you can sell whatever nonsense you want as long as you have the energy capital e energy it is it it, i mean it's it's pretty good. Like, he does a really good job. Like, it's still terrifying until you, like, listen closely and you're like, he's just like, hinger dinger, schnitzel, rabba higa. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's just like, oh my, it's genius. It is. No, it is. It it's is very well placed, I think. And especially because it opens the film and there's no subtitles, so it's just all energy, all gibberish. And wow, what what a performance, honestly. Give, give him an Academy Award retroactively. Honestly, though, honorary Academy Award, Elon Musk, get on it. <laughs> Bill Gates, Elon Musk, um, form the super billionaire robot and make the world better. Do it. Mm. Um, 
Um, the other thing about this film is that uh, Chaplin later said that if he had known the extent of the Germans' atrocities towards non-Aryan people, uh, he would have probably never made this film. Y- you know, we've talked about it a couple times up to this point. Like, they could not have known. And yeah, I see what he means, maybe having some regrets over making a comedy about this. But I think it did say some things that really needed to be said. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like... It- it just kind of, like, made the legacy of this film for, like, the first 20 years after kind of, like, like what he did here is not what, like, Disney did with some of their, like, World War II stuff. Absolutely not. This is not Donald Duck Nazi. That's no. not what we're talking about right now. Um, let's talk about the release of the film. So the film was released in inter- so the film was released uh, in the United States on October thirty first, nineteen forty. Uh, it also it kind of followed a Three Stooges anti Hitler film, uh, You Nazi Spy, which premiered in January of nineteen forty, and. Um, <laughs> Maybe they had a little more right to do so because uh, the Three Stooges, uh, just like Adam Sandler said in the Hanukkah song, all Jewish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it's definitely personal for them. And, you know, maybe it's personal in a way that you could argue it wasn't personal for Chaplin. But uh, again, having like knowing the extent of how it w- ended up going, I think anybody was within their right to speak out against it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like when you see atrocities, if you're the one being quiet, then you're only helping their cause. Like, right. Ca- like kind of like I don't necessarily believe that. But I mean, you know, if you watch someone getting beaten up and you do nothing, like if you don't try and stop it or at least call someone to help, then like you you are also letting it happen. Right. Not making a decision is making a decision. Correct. So, um, this film was actually very well received in the U S but it was banned in several South American countries due to Nazi sympathizer movements growing in the region. I'm looking at you, Argentina, you know, I'm looking at you, uh, George Joseph Mangala lived out the last days of his life, just chilling on the beach. (laughs) I refuse to cry for you, Argentina. Uh, you know what? N- nor am I sympathetic toward, like, the the weird, like, uh, Nazi military gear that you bought after the war. <laughs> I'm definitely not crying for you, Argentina. As a matter of fact, I'm angry with you now. You know what, Argentina? No longer... You know what? No. I'm not going to say you're no longer a friend of this show. The people of Argentina today had nothing to do with that. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on. So the film was not released in France until 1945. Interesting. I, well, like, international movies kind of had a harder time like but it was like both ways like it's not like american films get put out like everywhere same day as america Mm -hmm. back then i mean like even nosferatu which was a german film that didn't come to the united states until like two or three years after it had premiered in germany Mm, okay yeah no i see i think also like it's funny that it happened then after like the allied liberation of france because like you know if we're good at anything it's bringing our culture with us wherever we go militarily i think it had more to do with just making enough prints oh really yeah because it's not like you could just digitally send the film somewhere like you actually had to send canisters right so you you mean to tell me that there was some guy sitting in a bunker with his nazi helmet on be like man i just wish they would send over a copy of the great dictator but they can't do it because there's not enough prints that's exactly it honestly and i'm I'm not even joking like that's exactly it i believe it. It, 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 it is literally just a um supply could not keep up with demand I guess that's a good place to be in for Charlie Chaplin Film Corporation. Well, not just that. I mean, that's just any film, like, before digital. Like, that's just how it was. Like, Hmm. you remember how, like, Harry Potter movies would premiere, like, a month 
before um they did in like England before they would in America. Yeah. That was why cuz they had to send the fucking film canisters over here. Hmm. Or partially. I think it also came out that that one might be a little different but like the concept is there. I see what you mean. No, I see what you mean. <laughs> All right. So um and in later news, uh the film was released on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection in 2011. So this is available in modern formats. It's also available on HBO Max if you haven't seen it. Uh, that is actually how I saw it. It's how I saw it as well. Um, I have, I actually do not own this one. Um, I'm kind of waiting for like a Charlie Chaplin like box set to buy. I'm kind of surprised there aren't a couple already. There are box sets of like his silent films, but like I kind of want like a complete works, mm-hmm. or at least like a like survey of works because some of his old like I mean like the silent movies like some of them are only like eight minutes long. Mm-hmm. Like um some of his like greater epics like you know like uh modern times and city lights those are feature length, but a lot of his other stuff is not. So like you could probably fit like half of them on one Blu-ray. Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, I would definitely want to see it too, especially after seeing this. Yeah, I would love to see like a restored, and I'm sure they exist, and I'm. Just, it's just not something that I'm like looking for, but I just, I have not bought any Charlie Chaplin to add to my collection, and I, I maybe I'll remedy that soon, because this movie reminded me of just how much I like him and how much star power he really did have, mm-hmm. and he couldn't even use his fucking mouth no, no, for half I guess of his not. career. Yeah, and you know what? It's funny, because like when he started doing it, it's great. Like, it's really great. Like, he's really convincing. He's a really compelling actor with voice. Yeah, and a lot of silent era actors, like, that didn't happen for them. So he really, really nailed this. He bridged the gap, and I think that makes him an amazing artist. He, uh, Charlie Chaplin, 10 out of 10. Love him. I don't know much about his personal life, but as far as his art, 10 out of 10. So let's discuss a few things about the movie. Um, so this movie was made before U.S. involvement in the world conflict. Uh, do you think that it would have changed the movie had we been involved from the beginning? I think that this became uh, like like it, it was made not really as like a political statement about America, but really like a political statement about the world or just like something that needed to be said about the world. And it didn't get co-opted into like a um, like like a war bond drive type situation because of the time it was released in. But I very easily could have seen this becoming one of those things if it had been released after the U.S. In- got involved in the war. I think it would have been meaner. I don't I don't think it would have been as funny. No, cuz I mean it I hate to say it but I mean it really would have become a sort of propaganda because a lot of it does become like a let's support the let's support the armed forces, let's support the war machine, let's support the complex that like makes this thing go around because frankly at the time I mean they were completely justified in doing so or at least justified in doing those things. So, I mean, uh, so many things became that. I mean, so many entertainers became war bond drive people, but this was not one of those things. No, this was, um, this was purely just like, I'm making my art to stand up against something I wholeheartedly disagree with. Yeah. And, um, and, and going back to what you were saying, I mean, like the government actually paid a lot of those, like, you know, we talked about like Nazi Donald, like the government paid Disney to do that. Mm, I wonder if they paid the Popeye cartoon guys to do the whole, uh, like, Japanese one. Uh, let's not go there. Ah, uh, yeah. No, bad feel. <laughs> bad feels. Um, don't look it up. Too don't, soon, don't like 80 years after the fact. <laughs> um, racism in any form is always going to be um, too late. 
Yes. <laughs> it's it, we we don't support that shit here. Um so how do you feel like this portrayal of Hitler compares to like something like Inglorious Bastards or Jojo Rabbit? Have you seen either one of those? I've seen Inglorious Bastards and I'm familiar with Jojo Rabbit. I think um with Inglorious Bastards in particular, it's very much like a catharsis. You know, like, that's what people want to see because it's literally just baked into the, like, collective unconsciousness at this point that, like, you gotta rag on Hitler, which is completely justified. Correct. It's like, they made him, like, Quentin Tarantino made him big, bad, evil. Yes. Like, like the way that you, like you said, like, you would imagine Hitler would be, whereas Jojo Rabbit actually does something kind of similar to this movie. As a matter of fact, like, this movie is a very, um, it's a very big influence on Jojo Rabbit, just like it was the interview. Mm-hmm. Because in Jojo Rabbit, it te- it's, t- it's the story about a young boy in the Hitler youth, and the way that Hitler is introduced in the film is as his imaginary friend. Hmm. And so he's, like, very, like, effeminate and boisterous, like, almost like he's being this young boy's friend. And he's, um, you know, telling him to do horrible things like, you know, like, you know, the things that Hitler would tell the Hitler youth to do. Yeah, like throw tomatoes at the Jews. Yeah, like that. That's in the movie. I didn't just make that up. It is in the movie. But um, it's... I guess they're really hard to hit on those trapeze, though. <laughs> if they would just stop flying. If these acrobatic Jews would just stop swinging around, I could hit him with the tomatoes. Stand still so I can hit you with this tomato. Hitler said so. <laughs> Again, in the movie, not our idea. <laughs> not our idea. They did this, not us. We're just we're just making fun of it, just like Charlie Chaplin did. Um, how did you feel about the speech at the end of the film? Uh, riveting, frankly. Again, I think that's one of the things that really surprised me was that finding out that this was his first talkie and that he did something so like important and like really well played as a silent film actor coming over onto the talkie side yeah i mean it like like we said before it's just it's so incredible that like he just hit it out of the park try one yeah which i think just speaks to him as an artist and like it's kind of sad that we didn't get more talkies out of him because like i feel like this movie is still relevant yeah no 100 i mean it looks good it's uh it, it's it feels good to watch it's got like important themes in it like it it definitely is still relevant it's just it's so well crafted and i mean i i couldn't think of a better way to start this little series we're going to be doing where we're talking about just comedies i mean like i feel like this is like a landmark like this was i think this might be like the first big american satire i see about something going on in another country I see it. No, I definitely see it. So, I mean, unless you have anything else to say, I think that's going to wrap it up for me on uh, The Great Dictator. No, I don't really have anything else to say about it. I mean, it it was a really good film. I'm honestly surprised I hadn't seen it up until this point because, I mean, it's kind of a joke that, like, you know, Hitler ruined the mustache and, like, put Charlie Chaplin out of business. But if anything, I think Hitler, in a weird way, kind of used his ridiculousness to launch Charlie Chaplin into the talkie sphere. (laughs) He he, he did it all just to get a talkie picture out of Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah, for a guy that really didn't like Charlie Chaplin all that much, he sure did a lot for him. (laughs) He gave him a lot to work with. (laughs) How cruel the hand of fate is. Yes. So that's going to do it for us on For Your Information today. Um, If you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it helps us, it helps other people see us better, like when there's more five star reviews or even four star reviews not that i want the four star i want the five star but you know i'll take what i can get uh if you leave us a review on apple Podcasts, we'll actually like uh but well i'll I'll read it right here at the end of the episode
episode. So do it. And like I said, that's going to do it for us here at For Your Information. Uh, I'm Zach Graham. And I'm John Kaplan. And remember, life would be wonderful if people would just leave you alone. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> Watch a new movie this week, guys. See ya.